Greetings, greetings. Today's read of Water and the Spirit, Ritual, Magic, and Initiation in the Life of an African Shaman, written by Mele Doma Somme. Today's read will be Chapter 26, Homecoming and Celebration. I've chosen to not read the details of his time in the bush, six weeks of initiation. Um, he didn't, of course, share every detail. There's no way to it. It's, it's an oral tradition. So, so much of it cannot be put down on paper and it's passed from person to person. Um, but the gist of what I wanted to, to share here, um, has been shared here with my reading and so we're coming to the end of it again chapter 26 homecoming and celebration as the initiates walked in single file toward the village it was easy to envision the kind of homecoming waiting for us there the trees the grass the stones and the village itself all seemed a part of it i felt both a sense of closure and the turmoil of a new beginning. The feeling of completion was real because I had not died. The other initiates also radiated a sense of peace and completion. We were at the ending of boyhood, coming home to begin new lives as men. The elders arrived first at the boundary between village and forest. From a few hundred meters away, we would hear fragments of the ritual of return passing between them and the authorities of the village. That was the elder's final official action. When the ritual words had been spoken, they surrendered us to an exhilarated community, overwhelmed just as we were by our return. We all felt as if we had been to the end of the world and back. None of us could respond adequately to such an exhibition of joy. We knew we were the cause of it, but somehow we had lost the stamina to celebrate our victory. Someone fired a gun as as a welcoming salute. The noise shocked my ears in the same way they had been shocked by the screaming sounds in the underworld. They jerked and became quiet. Meanwhile, the crowd, as if stirred to greater jubilation by the gunshot, became hysterical, rushing at us as if we were manna dropped by God into the middle of the village. Mothers collided with their sons, now become men, in a concert of emotional jabbering while sisters wept quietly nearby. My mother came to me and held my arms in hers for a while, her moist gaze locked onto mine. The moment was infinite in every respect. I no longer felt any anger toward her. In her eyes, I saw a great depth of love from a heart that knew nothing else. Yet, I did not have the energy to reciprocate. I could only acknowledge her love. Sometimes, silence speaks better than words. My sister Zanta stood by, devoutly observing that, observing what went on between my mother and me. Farther away, father stood, surrounded by the rest of the family who waited in calm communion. As mother released me, 
Zanta stepped forward and shook hands with me, wishing me good homecoming in French. That drew a smile from me. Then we went over to join my father, my four brothers, and the rest of the family. My father did not speak to me yet, but we exchanged a silent glance as we headed home. An annex had been erected next to father's quarter, painted white with a mixture of cow dung and ash. It was elegant and inviting. I was overjoyed to see it because I understood what it symbolized. Every house to which a boy was returning from initiation had an extension or a special quarter painted white, the color of hospitality. Nothing else in the compound had changed, but the structure of the inner yard with the doors opening into individual rooms seemed especially inviting now because the design included me. The door to my room was also white. My father opened it and beckoned for me to enter. The room was cool and dark. Its single tiny window facing east let in little light. The cow dung that served as a finish for the walls exhaled a strong smell, but I got used to it quickly. I walked to the mud bed that was built almost against the wall. It was covered with a straw mat and a blanket. I felt as if I wanted to lie down, but my sister pointed to the stool near the bed. I remembered that I was not supposed to touch anything modern until after the customary bath, so I sat and rested on the mud stool, which felt cool against my naked body. It too was built against the wall. Mother brought the customary welcoming refreshment, millet cake and tamarind juice mixed into water. I drank it straight down while the family looked on. It tasted good. It was then that my father spoke for the first time. He recited some welcoming words in an unemotional voice and wished me well. I did not know how to respond, so I remained silent. My sister then announced that a bucket of bath water had been put in the washroom for me and that more would be available as the need arose. I walked out into the sunlight, which hit me as if I had been in the dark for days. The washroom, open to the sky, felt like a beach, except that the water was in a clay pot fetched by women from the nearby river. The water had been warmed up in the kitchen. There was a cake of local soap nearby, made from mixing potassium or ash juice with indigenous oil. It was round and gray and smelled like ammonia. My washcloth was made from the pounded root of a tree. It smelled aromatic. The contact with the warm water revitalized me as I filled up the calabash that floated in the clay jug and poured its contents over my body I could not help thinking of how difficult it was to become a man in a traditional setting. It had taken six weeks of perilous adventures to bring me to the point where I could ritually wash away the impurities of my previous state. After that, I would be able to touch the soft cloth of my mud bed. I thought about those who had never made it back home. 
knowing that their sons were lost between the worlds that were their families what were their families doing at this moment i had not had time to notice if anyone looked sorrowful at the welcoming place but now i wondered about the bereaved families what were they feeling at this moment of general celebration true the villagers had seen more men coming home than it had lost but the universal joy was overshadowed by a mystery more profound than the honoring of our newfound manhood i shook my head partly to get the water out of my hair since there was no towel but also to shake these heavy thoughts out of my mind still wet i returned to my room where my father was waiting for me holding my first traditional suit we began a dressing ritual the suit had three components. The first was a pair of bulky pants called a short. They looked like an oval barrel with two brief extensions at the bottom for the legs to exit from. The top of the short was wide enough to fit three additional people. To make it fit just one, there was a rope sewn inside the cotton fabric of the waistband. When pulled, the rope gathered the pants into a good fit. The fabric of the legs was decorated with family medicine designs. The main part of the suit was an oversized bow bow. Its sleeves were long enough to cover my arms. On the front and back of this suit were images from the underworld, the family earth shrine, the nature shrine, and the ancestral shrine. A bird, the symbolic messenger of nature, sat on top of the nature shrine and looked out over the panorama of the underworld. A chameleon, symbol of adaptability and compatibility stood beside the ancestral shrine and several hieroglyphics symbolized the family medicine gathered over centuries the final component of this ensemble was a hat much much simpler in design it resembled a crown the seven cones at the top represented the seven secrets of the medicine of our clan the image of the chameleon was embroidered on either side. A star, symbol of leadership, was embroidered on the front. My father took the pants, held them stretched out in his hands, and murmured prayers. First, he faced north. This suit will be worn in conformity with the way of our elders, whose bodies have returned to nature, and whole spirits watch over us day and night. This suit will be a living shrine for the medicine of our clan, the Birafor, and a tribute to the medicine of Bakai that I inherited and that also belongs to his grandson. This suit will be a tribute to the continuity of our ways and will shine forth truth wherever it goes and whenever it is on this man's body. Then he faced the sun lifted the suit upward three times and gave it to me to put on. I introduced my leg into the immense pants, searching for the tiny exits intended for my feet. It took some struggling to get the thing to hang around my waist and the contact of the cotton against my skin felt soft and strange. In six weeks, I had learned to live without clothes. I would need time to get used to them again. The bow bow was easy to put on. My body disappeared into it like a vessel caught in the clouds. With the hat on, I felt like an elder. 
Over 15 years ago, I had seen them in this very kind of outfit for the first time. Now, it was my turn. My father backed away, took a long look at me, and exhaled an oon of satisfaction. With that, he invited me to come out into the compound yard. My movements were as noisy as if I were a huge bird taking flight. In the yard, I felt as if I were on stage. Everyone in the house came out to take a look. My mother could not seem to get enough of me. She kept walking around and around until I felt dizzy. We were supposed to go to the village circle for a dance ceremony, the last one before the feast. Everyone got dressed, and surrounded by my loved ones, I left the house. played tunes that were strange to me but not to the others who were singing along as soon as we arrived father led me to a house where the other initiates were waiting for our official appearance in our outfits our clothing had changed us so much it was hard to tell who was who we said nothing only the music of the xylophone outside reached our ears and even its voice did not last very long suddenly The silence was broken by another gunshot. The sound of the xylophone began again, accompanied by a drum that roared out rhythms as if it were angry at something. The music, as the xylophone was familiar, it was the song of return. I had a date in the bush with all the gods, so I went. I had a date in the bush with all the trees, so I went. I had a date in the mountain with the candomblé. I went because I had to go. I had to go away to learn how to know. I had to go away to learn how to grow. I had to go away to learn how to stay here so i went and knocked at doors locked in front of me i craved to enter oh little did i know the doors did not lead outside it was all in me i was the room and the door it was all in me i just had to remember and I learned that I lived always and everywhere I learned that I knew everything only I had forgotten I learned that I grew only I had overlooked things now I am back remembering I want to be what I know I am and take the road we always forget to take. Because I heard the smell of things forgotten and my belly was touched. That's why I had a date with the bush. That's why I had a date with the hill. That's why I had a date with the world under 
Now, Father, I'll take you home. I am back. The villagers sang along with the xylophone while the drum pounded the rhythm with frenetic joy. The coach came into the room where we were all waiting. He was carrying a beat marker and a pair of small cymbals, one attached to his thumb and the other to his middle finger. He marked the beat by hitting the cymbals against each other. He also had a whistle that he blew continually as if to alert us to something. We lined behind him by the exit. even harder, then leapt out, dancing. He danced around in a circle, then faced the doorway where we waited. We moved out, rhythmically, in single file, and followed him toward the dancing circle. The crowd cheered as two gunshots blasted the atmosphere. We arrived at the xylophone and circled it. I did not know the dance steps very well, but I kept an eye on the coach, who, with the help of his whistle, told us when to turn, when to stop, and when to move. As we circled the xylophone and the drum, walking in tune with them, a power surged up from the depth of my belly, climbed the steps of my spine, and invaded my heart, making it throb frantically. When this power reached my eyes, they filled with tears. Tears of joy, I thought. What a commencement exercise this is. How was it possible that I was here while others who had seemed better prepared were not? How had I survived the ordeal? I could hardly believe I was a participant in a traditional festivity in which no one saw me as an outsider. The memory of 15 years of brainwashing in the seminary, an institution that claimed the supremacy of knowledge, stood timidly in a corner of my mind, as if afraid of competing with what I now knew. I thought to myself that a person who lives in denial of who he really is must have a hard time living because he would have to invent meaning and purpose from the ground up. No one can tell us who we are or how we must live. That knowledge can be found only within To deny our true nature can only cause us tremendous pain. The sun was about to set. Its fading light gently illuminated the cloud of dust surrounding our celebration. The crowd had become ecstatic. Hands were clapping all around us as if we were performing something magical. I did not know if I was dancing or just walking along, lost in the dream world. I felt the touch of the cotton fabric of my clothes each time I took a step forward or backward. The rest of the time, the cloth merely hid me. It felt good to be concealed. I was happily invisible. The dance was entering its third cycle. The circle of over 60 dancing initiates looked like a huge, precious ring presented as a gift to the villagers. I could clearly see what happiness means. It poured out of every face like a flow of pearls given to a bride. The people were not just singing along and watching us dance, they were also participating. The coach, the leader of the ceremony, could barely be seen in the middle of the thick clouds of red dust 
stirred up by hundreds of bare feet pounding on the dry soil. His whistle was getting fainter, but he still used it as his voice, signaling to us what steps to execute next. He blew his whistle and we jumped and spun in a circle, transforming our clothing into immense outstretched umbrellas under which one could see our tiny bodies flashing in rhythmical ambulation. In perfect synchronization, everyone went right, then left, then center. Then, in an ultimate move, the entire circle sat. Xylophone players, singers, clappers, whistlers, everybody stopped simultaneously. There was a profound silence. Then, everyone woke from the trance, and our circle broke into a single line that went back into the house it had exited from. The initiation dance was over. But for the villagers, the feast had barely begun. The music now played only for them, and they danced to it tirelessly. We initiates were no longer obligated to do anything. Packed next to each other like migratory birds in the small medicine room, we held hands and held our breath for a moment in acknowledgement of the ancestral shrine. Then we lifted our hands gradually and emitted a sound of release that broke into a roar as our hands reached skyward. This time, we did not exit the room in formation. Some of us joined the dancing. Others, like me, headed home with their families. The day was over, and it had been a full one. I had come back home as a member of my village. I felt immensely pleased, but I could not find an effective way of expressing this to my loved ones. Perhaps I was too tired, or my feelings were too great for words, or perhaps they just needed silence. Whatever the reason, I honored it. Walking home from the village circle, I felt as if the vault of the sky were watching over my every step while my family, elated by my return, served as a shield that surrounded me as if I were a precious and endangered species to be saved at all cost. At home, a crowd that had not made it to the dancing ground was waiting, drinking millet beer. I noticed Griso seated at my father's door, along with the other councilmen of the village, Fiansu, Kaire, Zapla, Dazier, and Gozin. They too had skipped the dance ceremony. My father was among them. I remembered seeing him at the beginning of the initiation dance, but not afterward. As I walked in, Guiso motioned for me to come and join them. I picked a stool and sat. He was smiling, his face luminescent with joy, but the others looked grave. They were the kind of face that councilmen put on when they are busy cooking up deep things to say. Fiansu finally spoke. They say that wisdom comes with age and remembering. They say it comes with a sharp eye, but... I did not see what was hidden in you, Maladoma. I was not sure what he meant, so I did not respond. Guiso urged Fiansu to be more explicit. He and the elders he and the other elders knew what he was going to tell me, but it was obvious that Fiansu was not very enthusiastic about having to say it. They argued among themselves for a while, then, as if convinced that he owed me an apology. Fiansu continued, When you first came from the white man's country, 
you caused the council a lot of talking. Because you knew what the white man knows, I thought you were a danger to our way of life. We all know that whatever the white man goes, wherever the white man goes, he is the predator and everybody else is his potential victim. So, when the others thought you should be initiated, I opposed the idea. I had a good reason. You can bring words from out of your mind and put them on paper for all to see. How can a dog thought and a cat thought, two contradictory ideas, live together in the same person? But today, as I look at you, you're a part of us and also a part of them. That's what baffles me. For how can you be a part of them and part of us at the same time? When I opposed your initiation, it was because I wanted you to live. I never thought you would make it. But here you are, all flesh and blood. I or a chicken and a goat to the nature shrine. Kaire laughed with contentment, spat out some cola nut, then cleared his throat and spoke. Thank you, fianço saying this in front of this young man and all of us. Today, I can say that he is a little better than us because he knows more than all of us here. Who else in this whole village is the kind of person he is now? He grabbed an empty calabash and offered it to Fiancu who sat in front of a large calabash full of millet beer. Cut me a drink, he said. This thing will always be remembered as the impossible denied impossibility. We don't want to burden this child with our talk now. This day is his day to celebrate as he wishes. Let him go. We can talk to him later. He drained his beer in a gulp and poured the dregs away. They made an explosive sound upon contact with the ground. Satisfied, he emitted a loud burp, grabbed his walking stick, and slowly stood up. Fiancu, however, had more to say. You can't believe that I was all wrong. You wanted the boy initiated because you thought that our education was going to clean him up from the white man's education. I wanted him out of initiation to save him from death. Today, you're making me into the bad guy because he survived. Have you checked to see how he feels about being in the middle of two worlds? You can't because you're not in his skin. Even the quantum blade can't because their reasoning is not capable of doing justice to this issue. I can only imagine how strange it must feel to not really belong because of what you know. Guiso, when you looked into his initiation at the white man's school, what did you find? Tell him. I told him what I knew about him before he went to the initiation camp. You too must tell him what you know. Fiancu was getting excited now. Guiso seemed annoyed. We are not here to make confessions to this young man, but to tell him how pleased we are with him. Let's not turn our original intent into a disquieting babble. If I did not know what I know about his learning at the white man's school, I myself would have objected to his initiation because the whole process is about remembering. You can remember things you know, but you can't unknow things you remember. 
The Canton Blade told me the boy was an apprentice feeding on the white man's knowledge. That's why he could be initiated. Are you happy now that you got me to say these things in front of him? The information that Guiso had was not troubling, but it was Guiso's habit as a mentor not to be talkative about me. A mentor does not talk about his student with other people. Guiso knew that the context here was exceptional, but still he felt uncomfortable. You bet I am. Do you think that I let myself be turned into an evil now that the boy can sit with us and talk to us directly? He is as much my son as he is yours. Now, let's celebrate because today is his day. Part of me felt amused as I listened to these elders while another part struggled to stay calm. The part that wanted to stay calm was fighting the urge to say something nasty to Vianso. I wanted to tell him that I could never be his son, but I did not succumb to this urge. Instead, I tried to show discipline by avoiding open conflict, and I did not really have to go out of my way to do that. I was a different person now than I had been, and it was easy to stay silent. My silence seemed to have spoken louder than words, for Fiancu looked at me, baffled. Kaire nodded. The kind of nodding that acknowledges the proximity of wisdom. I overheard Dazier say something to Guazin to the effect that it takes the special knowledge I possessed to maintain this quiet on a day like this. It was already getting dark outside. Guiso seemed to want to carry on this discussion with Fiansu about remembering and learning how to know. Kaire, who had suspended his leave taking when Fiansu began to speak, now decided to complete it. I must go home. Everybody is out celebrating, and the whole house is ghost house now. Someone must always stay at home to make it a place for the living. No one tried to stop him. He did not have to explain why he had to go. Wasn't he the chief of the Earth Shrine? This was the first time he had come to my father's house since the funeral of my grandfather. The chief seldom goes anywhere. Everybody comes to him. So, coming to my father's home was a high honor. It was also an honor that almost all the members of the village council were here at the same time. The only one missing was Bofing, whose rheumatism had knocked the function out of his legs. My father was beatific. He could not hide his joy at seeing what was happening in his own house. He tried to stop the chief from going home so soon, saying that the Thanksgiving meal was yet to come, but the chief replied that he had come to see me, and having done so, he had no interest in any in anything else. Feeling a little awkward in the midst of so many personalities, I decided I would go to my room, get comfortable, and enjoy a little privacy. I had never had a room before. I changed and put on my old seminary clothing, which resembles Boy Scout attire, but is white. It felt very tight, but it was bearable. After a month and a half of living naked, I could no longer tell what was fashionable or appropriate. My brothers came in, and we poured some drinks. The quiet of our sharing contrasted with the sounds of revelry reaching us from outside. The drinking had opened up people's throats, and they began to sing. It was the sound of homecoming, the kind that tells you that you are linked to people who care. I liked what I heard. A melody never experienced before. So peacefully produced within me a joy beyond 
definition. I understood that what makes a village a village is the underlying presence of the unfathomable joy of being connected to everyone and everything. Thank you.